This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class on the civil rights movement from the 1940s through the 1960s. It was taught in 2012 by University of Washington professor Quintard Taylor. Folks, welcome to this class in African American history. Um, we're going to discuss the civil rights movement, or at least we're going to begin our discussion of the civil rights movement tonight. Um, for those of you, those of you in this room know who I am, but for others, I'm Quintard Taylor, uh, and I'm a professor of, of uh, history, American history, at the University of Washington. Okay, we'll get started. Um, last time, last last week, we talked about World War II, and one of the things that I tried to emphasize was the fact that ordinary people were becoming much more militant or aggressive in terms of defending their civil rights. And I'm going to continue that theme tonight. And indeed, I think it's even more so the case in the 1950s and the 1960s that ordinary people became the the engines of the civil rights movement. We tend to think about the civil rights movement as Martin Luther King and Fannie Lou Hamer and kind of larger and larger than life figures. But I would argue that the civil rights movement was also made up by ordinary people, including, and you're going to find out tonight, a lot of college students. A lot of college students. In fact, uh, in some ways, the driving force of the civil rights movement uh, came from people who were probably no older than you in this room. I want you to remember that. College students were those who were going to be uh, the main force in terms of the civil rights movement. Okay, so I want want us to keep that in mind when we talk about uh, the, the evolution of this movement. I'm going to begin the lecture by discussing the decade of the 1950s, because the 1950s really provide, I think, the impetus for what will be the, what, what most historians call the grand civil rights movement of the 1960s. There are three episodes. The num- episode number one is <laughs> Brown, uh, the Brown decision in 1964. Brown v. Board of Education. We'll say a little bit more about, about that later on. Uh, episode number two is the Montgomery bus boycott. And, of course, that boycott was important for a variety of reasons, not only, not only the fact that it catapulted Martin Luther King to fame, but also because it was the first successful movement in the Deep South that actually challenged racial segregation. And then, of course, there was the Central High School desegregation crisis in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, everybody in this room has probably heard of Little Rock. Uh, you're familiar with, you're generally familiar with what went on. What I'm going to talk about tonight, though, is the fact that these, all three of these episodes, and especially Little Rock, were going to, in effect, lay the foundation, lay the foundation uh, for what would become the more active civil rights movement of, of the 1960s. Each of these episodes indicated profound changes in race relations and in black progress. And as I've argued all throughout this class, when we talk about black progress and race relations, we're not talking about black people gaining new rights. We're talking about African-Americans seeing the rights that they lost in the 1870s finally restored. In other words, when we talk about voting rights, blacks were essentially trying to get back the rights that were supposed to be guaranteed by the 15th Amendment uh, that was ratified finally in 1870. Uh, (laughs) Let me, let me 
show a couple of slides that reflect on what I call this rising militancy and this increasing effort to try to change the, the narrative in terms of civil rights and civil rights struggle. First of all, as I said, militancy is the key word. It's the watchword. Uh, African Americans throughout the country, either inside the NAACP or beyond the NAACP, were much less tolerant of the racial order after 1946. In other words, the war itself had made people impatient uh, with racial segregation and racial discrimination. No longer would African Americans simply wait for the laws to change. Now they would force that change. Secondly, uh, the, the, the 1940s, especially in the 1950s, indicated that the federal government would increasingly use its authority and its power, even in the form of troops if necessary, to defend black rights. I, I love this photograph. Uh, it's, it's evocative in so many ways. First of all, technically, it's, the, it's U.S. Uh, forces, U.S. Army forces, defending the Freedom Riders bus near the Mississippi-Alabama border in 1961. And some of you know about the Freedom Riders, and we'll at least mention them in, in, in passing. But I think what's more interesting about this, and in the subtext that people don't know, is that virtually all of these young men, and they were young men, they were probably between the ages of 18 and 22, almost all of these young men were Southern boys. But they were also members of the U.S. Army, and they were sworn to defend the Constitution. And in this instance, they were sworn to defend black people who were protesting uh, for their civil rights. There's, there are a couple of other images that I want to show because they're really evocative of the role of the federal government and the way in which that role became, if you will, popular, at least in the North, in the 1950s and the 1960s. You probably don't remember this episode, but this is Ruby Bates. Well, actually, this is a Norman Rockwell painting of Ruby, Ruby Bates. Ruby Bates was an African American, young African-American girl uh, whose parents sued to have her integrated into a school, ironically, in the Ninth Ward of, of New Orleans, the, the ward that's now overwhelmingly black, but at the time it was white. And Ruby Bates' struggle, her struggle was captured by Norman Rockwell in this very famous painting. But I want to pull this up. This is the actual photograph of Ruby Bates. Why is this important? This, this is the federal government defending the rights of blacks, and in this instance, defending the rights of a little girl. This is powerful. This is evocative. This is somehow or another reflecting the changes that are taking place, the profound changes that are taking place in American society, and particularly the attitudes. Of the three episodes that I mentioned earlier, the Brown decision is by far the most important. The Brown decision reflects on two very important changes that had taken place in the 1940s and the 1950s. First, I want to pull this image up. There is a change in the courts. Now, I'm, I'm showing here the U.S. Supreme Court. Interestingly, this is the Supreme Court in 1954. It was all white and all male. And that was, you know, that, that was pretty well the norm at that time. Uh, but what's more interesting is that that Supreme Court would rule in 1954 unanimously in favor of racial, uh, the end of racial segregation in the public schools in the South. And what does that mean? Well, it means that the Supreme Court is moving in a particular direction, but it also means, or at least I argue, that it also reflects that a whole host of other courts were going to follow suit 
and they were going to issue orders or they were going to, to make decisions that would help to break down the wall of segregation. I'll take this a little bit farther. I argue that it's the courts that were the one arm of government at that particular time that were most committed to making sure that the rights of African Americans were respected. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. You may already know this. There is absolutely no way the Congress of the United States would have taken the similar step like this in 1954. And there is no way, in fact, that the President of the United States, President Dwight Eisenhower, would have taken that step without the prompting by, um, by the courts. Now, part of this is almost obvious. The Supreme Court is appointed. The appointments are for life. The appointments of the federal judges in the South are for life. And as a result, they are in some ways insulated uh, from public opinion in ways that the, the Congress and the President are not. The Congress and the President certainly were not embracing of civil rights at that particular moment as the Supreme Court was and as other courts were. And I make this argument, had it not been for those courts, had it not been for the courts, I doubt if we'd have much to say about the civil rights movement. In other words, they played a crucial role in terms of laying the foundation for what would come in the 1960s. But I suggest that there are other changes taking place as well. One of those changes was in the NAACP itself. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People that we've talked about you know, uh, in this class, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People in some ways lost this energy, lost this drive, lost this determination in the 1930s partially because it was attacked by, by the communists and the left. We've talked about Scottsboro. You all know the significance of the Scottsboro case. Even though the communists didn't get those young men off, the very fact that the communists were much more assertive, much more aggressive in terms of challenging for their freedom, put the NAACP in a shadow out of which it found itself very difficult to, uh, to emerge. By 1940, Certainly by 1942, 1943, the NAACP was re-emerging as the major civil rights organization in the country. It was, it was beginning to, if you will, regain the militancy that it had in, the first, in its first two decades. Uh, part of that is because of the, the war itself. Part of it is because World War II, of course, brought large numbers of African Americans out of the South and as they went to these various other cities, they often joined the NAACP. I'll give you an example here, a local example. This is the NAACP dinner at the Mount Zion Baptist Church in Seattle in 1945. What's important here is not the fact that these people are celebrating and having a great time at the dinner. What's important is that in 1940, there were only about 140 members of the NAACP in Seattle. By 1945, there were over 3,000, over 3,000. This kind of growth is, is pretty well typical, it's pretty well reflective of the, the evolution of, of NAACP chapters in a number of cities across the country. This was happening in the North. What was happening in the South was even more dramatic. In the South, uh, essentially, the NAACP, for the first time, became a major organization to contend with. Our best estimate is that between roughly 1940 and 1946, NAACP membership in the South increased from about 25,000 
to over 400,000. 25,000 to over 400,000. Now, this is, this is not just about numbers. It's not just about the growing ranks of the NAACP. It's also about what's happening within the organization itself. And in the 1940s, there's going to be an increase, a dramatic increase in the number of lawsuits filed by NAACP local chapters or local branches. In other words, what's happening here is that the, the national leadership of the NAACP is in many ways being pushed by the people at the bottom. The national movement is, is, is increasingly becoming a movement that's driven by ordinary people in various NAACP chapters across, across the country. And as you're going to see, this is going to have profound Im implications in the 1950s and 1960s. During the 1940s, and I think we've talked about some of this before, during the 1940s, the NAACP local chapters, local chapters, uh, were going to engage in a whole host of lawsuits. They were going to file a whole host of lawsuits, lawsuits against racial discrimination. Let me give you one example here. Well, we'll start with this one, the restrictive covenants. Uh, we've talked about restrictive covenants before in this class, and I'm not going to because the cameras are moving rolling, I'm not going to ask you to, to describe them. But essentially, you know the problem with restrictive covenants. You know that they were a major force in terms of keeping African Americans in the ghettos, in the various ghettos, in the urban north, and in some places in the south as well. And I would say in the 1930s, there was a small movement of NAACP types in Los Angeles to challenge restrictive covenants. That small movement became a larger movement it eventually spread beyond uh, Los Angeles. And by the 1940s, the Supreme Court, by 1948, the Supreme Court would finally rule against restrictive covenants. This is not the NAACP leadership from the top down saying we have to deal with restrictive covenants. These are local people, people in local branches, beginning with LA, who are saying that we have to challenge restrictive covenants. And eventually, the NAACP national leadership uh, got on board. Now, they got on board in a big way. They provided uh, you know, significant lawyers. They, they provided financial support. But the impetus, the impetus for this came from the bottom up, came from uh, the, uh, the NAACP branches in Los Angeles and, and, and elsewhere. There's something else that's going on by the 1940s as well. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I got this out of order. These are the Boilermakers. Um, I don't know if you remember our discussion of Boeing, but in Portland, the big struggle, the big political struggle was among the Boilermakers, the black Boilermakers who were discriminated against. The NAACP in Portland led the campaign to get racial justice for the Boilermakers. Let me repeat that. The NAACP led, the local NAACP led the campaign to get racial justice uh, for, for the Boilermakers. In fact, there were going to be at least three lawsuits that would eventually end discrimination by the Boilermakers uh, in Portland and elsewhere. But let me suggest that the, the NAACP's composition is changing. It's growing as an organization, and it's growing much more militant in terms of its, uh, its willingness to challenge the status quo. And particularly, the people at the bottom are growing much more militant. But there's also a huge change at the top that's going to be crucial in the long run. Between roughly 1938 and 1942, the NAACP will secure a number of new attorneys 
And these attorneys will be critical in terms of winning cases for the organization. I'm going to focus on three of them, the three, three that are on, on the uh, screen here. In some ways, these attorneys were the people who were going to help to create the style of the NAACP, the legal style of the NAACP, not just in the 1940s, but well beyond that. Let me talk about each of them briefly. Charles Houston. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Charles Houston, but uh, in, a, in, a, in, in a variety of ways, he is the architect of the modern civil rights movement, or at least the legal phase of the modern civil rights movement. He is the man who actually planned the, the legal strategy that would eventually result in Brown v. Board of Education. Charles Houston was the dean of the Howard University Law School at the time. Uh, he was also a Harvard graduate, Harvard Law School graduate. He was the first African-American to edit the Harvard Law Review. Now, I know in the last campaign with Barack Obama, there was a great deal of emphasis on Barack Obama being the first person to run the Harvard Law Review. Technically, Barack Obama, the president, uh, was elected to head the Harvard Law Review. But, but the person who was selected first, the African-American who was selected first, was Charles, Charles Houston. Charles Houston was a brilliant legal strategist, uh, and he sort of set the direction and the tone for the NAACP throughout the 1930s and into the 1940s. His cousin, William Hastie, the one in the middle, uh, was the second black to edit the Harvard Law Review. William Hastie would go to work for the NAACP in 1940, and he would be involved in a number of significant cases. But the third person here is the one that I'm sure you're most familiar with. That's Thurgood Marshall. How many, uh, let me ask, how many of you have heard of Thurgood Marshall before? Okay, okay, you're, you're already familiar with, with Thurgood Marshall as a, as a legal figure. Marshall's case is interesting. Um, he wanted to go to the University of Maryland Law School. He could not because he was African-American. And so eventually he settled on going to the Howard University Law School. And it's there that he met uh, Charles Houston. He came under the tutelage of Charles Houston. And the rest, as they say, is history. Because, because of Houston, Marshall would devote the rest of his life, the rest of his career, uh, the civil rights uh, litigation. In fact, Houston, Hasty, and Marshall, these three attorneys, would win almost as many cases for the NAACP as the, most of the leading lawyers of the NAACP had done in the previous 15 years. In other words, they were remarkably successful, uh, especially Marshall, especially Thurgood Marshall. And of course, partly that, that, that success would lead uh, to his being on the Supreme Court eventually. One of the things that I think has to be said about this, though, the, the irony of all of this, is that Houston, Hasty, and Marshall would be successful with the NAACP, at least in part, because there was nowhere else for them to go. The best black lawyers today would do what? They would go into corporate law, they would go into other fields, they, they, uh, they would work in a variety of legal areas. In 1938, or 1945 for that matter, the best black lawyers did civil rights law. They did civil rights law in part because that's what they wanted to do, but they also did civil rights law in part because other areas were, were closed to them. So in a sense, 
in an ironic sense, the, the discrimination against them by many of the law firms would, would lead them to be involved in the kinds of activities that will help to change uh, American life and particularly African American life. Let me come back to Charles Houston. As I said before, he's the one who would chart the, the legal strategy that would lead to Brown. That strategy was very simple, or at least I'm going to simplify it. <laughs> Essentially, it was this. The culprit is segregation, racial segregation. But, but one cannot confront segregation directly in 1940. One has to confront the edges of segregation. And essentially, uh, what, what these lawyers attempted to do was to try to look for, if you will, the weak spots, the weak places, the edges, uh, as I said before, the edges of segregation. What's an edge of, segrega uh, what's an edge of segregation? Well, the, uh, the schools in the border states. And so they would go after, they would attempt to desegregate schools uh, in places that were on the border of, of the U.S. South, or the border between the U.S. South and, and the U.S. North. What's another edge or, uh, of segregation? They would go after graduate schools because they tended to have older students. And older students, theoretically, presumably, would be more acceptable of the idea of racial desegregation. And so the NAACP began to launch a series of cases, a series of lawsuits against uh, various institutions in the, in the 1940s and the early 1950s. I'm going to give you three examples. I'm not going to talk about all of them, but I'll give you three examples. 1948, the NAACP initiated a lawsuit against the University of Delaware, against its graduate program, and as a result of the law lawsuit, that program accepted black students for the first time. 1949, the University of Kentucky integrated for the first time, in the, and essentially its graduate program integrated for, uh, for the first time as a result of the NAACP. In 1950, Louisiana State University, and this is significant because this is actually a Deep South institution, uh, Louisiana State University integrated its graduate programs for the first time as a result of the NAACP. And then, of course, there's the University of Oklahoma. <laughs> um, I, I don't know how much time I want to spend on this, but this is, this is, a, this is a photograph that's, that's evocative of the struggle uh, that was going on in the 1940s and early 1950s and how that struggle had ebbs and flows. The NAACP brought a lawsuit against the law school at the University of Oklahoma. Eventually, uh, they, or at least they thought that they prevailed. The NAACP thought it prevailed because the federal judge said uh, the University of Oklahoma Law School should integrate uh, its student body. At that point, uh, the university decided to, quote, technically integrate by providing a separate area for the one black student that was enrolled at the, at the university. Before they got to this, they actually put the, the single black student, G.W. McLaurin, essentially in the Capitol Rotunda, and they had one faculty member, one law school faculty member, teach him. Uh, this, was, this was a farce. This was clearly not an integration of the University uh, of Oklahoma Law School. And, and to be honest, this is not true integration of the University of Oklahoma Law School. But it reflects on the fact that there is, there is this 
this tension going on throughout the South uh, against African-American entry into various schools. This was considered a victory, and eventually the University of Oklahoma Law School uh, integrated, but not without some difficulty, not without uh, considerable difficulty. Nonetheless, one can argue that the integration of these schools, the law schools, the professional schools, the graduate programs, was fairly easy compared to, if you will, the 800-pound elephant in the room, and that's public school segregation. Public school segregation. I want you to look at this photograph for, for a minute. This is a typical black school, not only in Arkansas, but throughout the South. Racial segregation was the law of the land in a number of states across America, but nowhere was it more pronounced than in the Deep South. Uh, you probably see a number, of, at least I hope you see a number of things going on. Uh, you can see that there are a whole host of kids here. These schools were supposedly separate and equal. That was the idea that came from Plessy v. Ferguson. In point of fact, there was nothing equal about these schools at all. The black schools were clearly, they were patently inferior, and if, if anybody wanted to, to really investigate for five minutes, they would find out that this was the case. This was a situation that the NAACP would, uh, was going to have to take on. And indeed, it took it on partly because, or I would say mainly because, there were a whole host of parents uh, of, of African-American students who were upset at these, these kinds of conditions. Um, there's a lot of discussion about why blacks chose to try to desegregate the public schools in the South. Uh, we can get into all kinds of theories, but my idea is fairly simple, uh, and it's an idea that came from my parents. It's a, um, because my parents went through this along with a whole host of others. I'm not, not going to get into my own integration experience, but let me suggest to you that you're looking at someone who went to segregated schools up until 1965. So this is not just some story. This is not just ancient history. This is, this is something that would affect the lives of a whole host of people. For my parents and for a whole host of other black parents in the South, uh, there, was a, there was a very interesting situation. Throughout the whole period of segregation, throughout the whole period of disenfranchisement, that is when black people uh, didn't have the right to vote, there was never a time when African Americans were relieved from paying taxes. <laughs> Let me repeat that. During the entire period of segregation, during the entire period of disenfranchisement, there was never a time when black people were relieved from paying taxes. Folks, I can remember, oh God, I'm gonna do, I'm, I'm doing this on camera on national TV, but I'm gonna do it anyway. I'll probably never be asked to do this again. <laughs> but, but, but I can tell you, I can remember my own parents going down to the courthouse and literally going to the courthouse back door to pay their property taxes every year. And they did so at a time when they couldn't vote. They did so at a time uh, when they didn't have uh, the, the rights and the safeguards of, quote, normal citizens in the United States. As I said before, this is, this is the paradox, this is the irony that black folks continue to pay taxes, including taxes to support the schools in the South. And the, much of the money, um, when, and we'll talk about this in a minute, much of that money was going to be diverted uh, to pay for, for the schools of, of others in the South at that time. 
I also think, again, we need to remember that most black parents weren't thinking in terms of school integration as essentially putting their kids in proximity with white kids. They were thinking of school integration as the only way, the only way to make sure that their kids had a quality education. The only way to ensure uh, that, that, that the education that their kids receive would prepare them for the future. I mean, I, we can argue that, that parents may have put too much stock in education. We can argue that they may have spent too much time focusing on education. But I think I, I understand at least my own parents, and I know that for them, that was the biggest civil rights battle of all. And indeed, even when you talk about getting the right to vote, getting the right to vote was at least in part to make sure that one had access to the best education, that one had access to education. Now, let me talk about the inequality. Uh, let, me, let me pull up a couple of images that reflect on this. Arkansas children receiving polio shots, 1957. You guys don't know this, but polio was a, was a major debilitating, uh, crippling uh, disease at the time. And only in the 1950s was there a vaccine that was available in order to, uh, to counter polio. And so what we have is modern technology, or at least modern technology for 1957, uh, and modern medicine being made available, but being made available in a segregated context. In other words, there's the black polio line, the black kids in line for their polio shots, the white kids in line for their polio shots. They are not going into the same room. And I, I use this slide, I use this, this photograph because, as, as I said, it's so evocative of the divide, the racial divide in, in the American South at, at the time. Let me give you another example, and again, this, is, this may be unsettling, but I'll show it anyway. This is an example of the inequality of facilities. This is the cafeteria for a black school uh, in Alabama in 1954. If you multiply this scene by a whole host of other scenes, then you'll begin to get the sense of what African-American parents, well, what African-American students and their parents were up against. Let me repeat this. There was no separate but equal facility in the South at this time. Every facility that was segregated, uh, if it was for blacks, it was going to be patently inferior. Let me pull up a chart that reflects on this. The cost of segregation. Look at, the, look at the numbers. The average daily pupil expense in, in all public schools in the South in 1950. Look at the difference for whites and blacks. Now let me remind you that this is at a time when black students represent about 40, depending on the state, now some states are even larger, but generally for the South, represent about 45% of the students in the South at the time. But you can see clearly the difference. And then if you get into the individual states, Look at the differences. Look at Georgia, but worse, look at Mississippi. In other words, there is, as I said before, there is no separate but equal here. Uh, clearly, the facilities that the African Americans had were going to be less because the, the allocations were going to be significantly less. I put up the, the figures for California, New York, and Washington. They were not segregated areas, but I put up the figures in comparison. And you'll notice right away that the area of the country that provides the least for education, the South, provides significantly less for African Americans. Provides significantly less for African Americans. You know, I, again, I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but people talk about the achievement gap today. 
This is the root of the achievement gap. This is where it came from. It came from uh, decades of poor training and, and the aftermath of that poor training that extends into contemporary society. Uh, by the early 1950s, African-American parents in South Carolina, in Virginia, in Delaware, in the District of Columbia, initiated a series of lawsuits uh, against segregation that were all eventually going to be collapsed under Brown v. Board of Education. I want to pull up Linda Brown. She's the, she's the key to all of this. Linda Brown uh, was a young girl who resided in Topeka, Kansas. Now, let's be clear. Topeka, Kansas is not the Deep South, but Kansas maintained a segregated school system. Linda Brown was bused, and I use this word intentionally. I use it for dramatic effect. She was bused across town to go to a segregated black school even though she lived two blocks away from a white school. We, we talk about, and, and, and maybe rightly so, how busing is used to, uh, to promote racial integration and how that creates disharmony, uh, and, and that's correct. But what about busing being used for years to maintain racial segregation? In other words, the bus was going in the opposite direction in order to, in order to make sure uh, that blacks were in, in all black schools. Uh, the other thing that's interesting about the brown suit, and, and this is all by circumstance, uh, the, the famous Supreme Court case became the Brown case essentially because Oliver Brown, the plaintiff, the, the, the father of Linda Brown, came first on the alphabetical role. In other words, his, his name came up before the others, and as a result, all of this was lumped under uh, uh, Brown. But what's interesting about the campaign in Topeka is not just that Topeka is involved in a, in a lawsuit against desegregation, or the black parents in Topeka are involved in this lawsuit against desegregation, or in favor of desegregation. What's interesting is that this is not the first lawsuit. The very first lawsuit filed by black parents in Topeka, Kansas, to challenge racial segregation, racially segregated schools, was filed in 1879. The very first suit was filed in 1879. Folks, this is long before the NAACP existed. So, so, so the NAACP is hardly uh, responsible for this. At any rate, I'm, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail here. You, you sort of know the rest of the story. The Supreme Court uh, will eventually come to make its decision. And that decision is handed down on May 17, 1954. And that decision is going to be monumental. Indeed, legal scholars consider it one of the three or four most significant decisions by the Supreme Court. I'm only providing a, a, a bit of this here. But that decision would send shockwaves through American society. And in some ways, in some ways, we're still dealing with it today. In some ways, when we talk about, as I said before, the educational gap, or when we talk about segregated schools, even in Seattle in the year 2012, we're dealing with the consequence of, of, the, of the Brown decision. But let me talk about the immediate consequence of the Brown decision, because that was going to be a huge reaction on the part of the White South to what happened. The White South, well, let me pull this up. The White South's reaction to the Brown decision was swift, and it was equally negative. And it set the tone for a pattern of resistance to desegregation that would extend, I have down here on the paper, for 20 years. I think we can argue that it would extend for 40 years. 
that would extend for 40 years. Uh, this was called the Massive Resistance Campaign. The Massive Resistance Campaign. Folks, I, you know, I, to show you this is not ancient history for me at least, I can remember seeing these signs in Tennessee and Mississippi in the, in the 1960s. I mean, this, the idea of impeaching Earl Warren, and essentially impeaching Earl Warren because of the Brown decision, was something that, uh, that was politically popular for, for a very, very long time. Southern states would pass new laws to prevent integration. Uh, let me give you some, some examples of, the, of these laws. In, in some ways, they're almost humorous, uh, except for the consequences that, the, that they bring about. Several states gave their governors the power to close schools that were ordered to integrate. Let me repeat that. Several states gave their governors the power to close schools that the courts ordered to integrate. In, in Virginia, the law went something like this. Uh, a governor can close a school that's been ordered to desegregate by declaring that school inefficient. Inefficient. And there were, uh, there were governors who would do so. But the grand example of, of what would happen, this is, this is essentially the governor stepping in. The grand example was Prince Edward County, Virginia, between 1957 and 1960. In that county, after a federal court had ordered Prince Edward County uh, to Virginia, excuse me, Prince Edward County, Virginia, to integrate its schools, between 1957 and 1960, there were no publicly operated schools in that county. Shall I repeat that? Between 1957 and 1960, there were no public schools operating in that county. Virtually all of the white students attended private schools. And the blacks who, who remained in the county, many of the blacks actually sent their kids out of the county, the black kids who remained in the county received no education at all for those three years. I use Prince Edward County only because I want to give you a sense, and it's hard to imagine now in 2012 this kind of reaction, but I want, I want to give you a sense of, of what would happen uh, and what in fact did happen uh, uh, after the Brown decision. As I said before, Virginia passed a law to deny uh, funding to inefficient schools, and inefficient schools were the schools that were declared racially integrated. But what's even more interesting, and maybe in some ways more sinister, is that in the wake of the Brown decision, new organizations arose that would make it their business to prevent not just the desegregation of the schools, but the desegregation of all of, of Southern society. Uh, there were a host of these organizations. I'm going to give you a couple, a couple of names. I'll give you three names. One of, the, one of the names you may be familiar with, the White Citizens Council. Uh, some of you, I think Eric's heard of the White Citizens. How many of you have heard of the White Citizens Council? Okay. Uh, some people call them the Uptown Klan. Uh, they, were, they were people who were dedicated to the idea of maintaining racial segregation, and they were often very powerful people in, in the community. My personal favorite, uh, in terms of these new organizations, was the National Association for the Advancement of White People. Uh, this, this was an organization that was created in order to try to stymie uh, racial integration. But perhaps the most sinister, the most sinister of these organizations, oh, I'm sorry, I should have pulled these up. These are, these are uh, images that reflect the opposition, the growing opposition to segregation. I love the one, uh, the woman holding the sign, integration is a mortal sin. <laughs> uh, and that opposition was palpable, guys, I, and I'll, I'll give you some more images in a minute. But I want to talk about this one, 
the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission. This was one of the organizations that was established to try to block, not just block desegregation in Mississippi, but to try to block any effort to change the racial status quo. How many of you have heard of the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission? I'm not surprised because it was a much more secretive organization than the White Citizens Council and it was much more sinister than the, the National Association for the Advancement of White People. The Mississippi Sovereignty Council or Commission was essentially an organization of very, very powerful private citizens, some of the richest citizens in the state of Mississippi, plus very powerful public figures who secretly belonged to this association. The governor of Mississippi belonged to it, Others, other public, public officials secretly belonged to it. And it, there are some who argue that it was behind much of the so-called Klan violence in Mississippi in the 1950s and the 1960s. Uh, the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission came to the fore uh, recently, or at least our knowledge of it came to the fore recently, uh, because of a woman who has a Seattle connection, Rita Bender. I, you know Rita, yeah, do you? Yeah, I don't know if you know her first husband. Her, her first husband was one of the three people killed in Mississippi in 1964. Yes, go ahead. No, I didn't know David Duke lived in Seattle. <laughs> That's news to me. Um, but, but Rita Bender lives here now. Rita Bender, and, and maybe I should pull up the second image. Well, no, actually it's on this one. Um, this is Michael Swerner. There's no reason for you to know the name now, but those of us who lived through the 1960s and even into the 1970s knew his name very well. He and, and these other two gentlemen were killed by Klansmen in Mississippi in 1964 because of their civil rights activity. There was a very famous book that was written about them called Three Lies for Mississippi. Um, Rita Bender was the wife at that time, well, and actually the widow uh, of Swerner. She was also a civil rights worker on her own in Mississippi. And she always believed, at least this is what, what I interpret from her, she always believed that the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission was behind her husband's death. And she continued to investigate it, and, and that investigation continued into the 1990s, into the first decade of the 20th century, and finally there have been indictments handed down against some of these people who were in the background. Not, not the people who actually did the killing, uh, most of those are dead, but against the people who provided, if you will, the, the money, the resources helped to create the climate that would allow uh, this kind of killing to take place. Rita Benda is a hero to me. She is, she is a person who came from the civil rights era and who continued to fight the good fight long after uh, most of us uh, were no longer interested in that, that direct civil rights campaign. Let me, let me give you, let me come back to the national story. Remember I, I talked about Barack Obama and the whole relationship to communism? Remember we talked about Joseph Stalin and some of you actually discussed Stalin in, on your exams? How the communists got involved in African-American civil rights activity in the 1960s? This is the shadow of this, or this is, if you will, the, uh, the mirror opposite of it. In other words, when people began to be involved in civil rights activity in the 1950s and the 1960s, 
it was very easy for the opposition to then say what? These people are communists. It was very easy for the opposition to make the communist uh, argument. And this, this was going to be very powerful. And as you can see, Arkansas state law in 1958, the NAACP, <laughs> it's, you know, anybody who knows about the NAACP would be hard-pressed to imagine the NAACP as the captive of the international communist conspiracy. But nonetheless, that's the law that was going to be passed in 1958. And it was passed for a very specific reason. Most of the NAACP members in Arkansas at that time were school teachers, were black school teachers. And this law was seen as a way of making sure that they would no longer be involved in civil rights work, that they would no longer be involved uh, with, with, the NAA, with the NAACP. Uh, this situation is, is heating up dramatically. There's, there's an escalation of tension, and I'll show you where that, that tension leads. Indeed, you can almost see it happening. These are black students turned away from North Little Rock High School in 1957. And of course, the, anti, the very famous anti-integration protests in Clinton, Tennessee in 1956. There was a race riot in Clinton, Tennessee over the idea of integrating the schools. In other words, there's growing tension all over the South. Um, there are a group of senators, I don't know how much, how far I want to get. Every, almost every senator from the South and every congressman from the South sign uh, a petition calling for the, uh, if you will, the removal of the Brown decision, or at least the negation of the Brown decision. I don't, I think this is almost unprecedented. I, it's hard to imagine uh, a scene where most of the senators and congressmen from a particular region are coming together over one issue like this, but they did at that particular time. Uh, school integration, as far as they were concerned, was a major step toward the destruction of their society. And as a result, they were going to try to do everything they could uh, to stop it. And that, of course, inevitably leads us to Governor Orville Faubus in Little Rock. I'm going to, I, I don't know if we can do this while the cameras are rolling, but I'm going to ask, or if this works very well, I'm going to ask how much you know about Little Rock. How much do we know about Little Rock? Steve, tell, tell me what you well, know. I've been there. Um, it was a school under federal order to integrate, and when local authorities attempted to bar the integration, Eisenhower sent federal troops, which was a direct intervention of force mm -hmm. for the first mm -hmm. time. Yeah, a direct intervention of force. That's key, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Um, what about the background? What, what prompted this? Well, actually, an NAACP lawsuit. An NAACP lawsuit calling for the desegregation of, of Central High, the, the major high school in Little Rock. Uh, the lawsuit went to a federal court. The federal judge said that, yes, <laughs> uh, Central High should be, uh, should be desegregated. And he ordered the entrance, the, the allowing of, of, of uh, eight young women and men into Little Rock High. Then it becomes very interesting because... When these people, when these kids show up to go to school under this federal order, they are turned away by a mob. They eventually show up again. They are turned away by the Arkansas National Guard. <laughs> and essentially, uh, Orville Faubus becomes the first of a number of governors who will stand in the schoolhouse door 
to prevent these kids from, uh, from going to school, from, to prevent these kids from going to Little Rock's Central High School. This is, this is a photograph that's been seen all over the world. This is Elizabeth Eckford. Uh, she's one of the eight students. She's walking. She's trying to get to the school. She's surrounded by a mob. And you can see the Arkansas National Guard people. We say Arkansas National Guard, but, but they were under the control of the governor at that moment, uh, essentially standing by as, as she's attacked. Every one of these students had to run the gauntlet of, if you will, the gauntlet of hate in order to try to get to the schools at that particular time. And ultimately, desegregation was not successful. Ultimately, ultimately, the federal court order uh, was being defied. And it's at this point, it's at this point, that President Eisenhower steps in. There's a backstory that I won't get into in a lot of detail here, but Eisenhower felt that he had an agreement with Orville Faubus to allow for the integration of the school. Orville Faubus went back on that agreement. Eisenhower became extremely upset, <laughs> and he decided that now the federal government has to step in. Not, not only that, the federal government has to, in effect, enforce the orders or the decisions of a federal court. <clears throat> and as a result, as, as Steve says, Eisenhower sends in, this is Eisenhower's press conference in 1957, where he announces that he's sending in 1,100 federal troops from the 101st Airborne Division. If you guys know anything about the military, the 101st Airborne was the toughest unit in the U.S. Army. The 101st Airborne was at that time the toughest unit uh, in the U.S. Army. Those troops were going to be sent to protect those kids at Little Rock. And not only did they protect them in September of 1957, federal troops remained at Little Rock until May of 1958. They remained for the entire calendar year. And it, and it made for a very bizarre situation. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I won't go into this in detail, but I'll give you an example. When a young lady, uh, or a young man, but mostly young lady, uh, had to go to the bathroom, one of the, one of the students had to go to the bathroom, she was required to be escorted by a member of the 101st Airborne. <laughs> uh, when, when, when these kids left home every day, they were escorted. And you can see this. You can see the Army. They're, they're riding the school in the Army car. When they left home every day, they were escorted by troops. When they returned home, they were escorted by troops. They didn't go anywhere on school grounds without the 101st Airborne. Now, you know, by our standards today, that seems like hyperbole. It seems like, my God, Eisenhower is ex exaggerating the situation. If you can imagine the anger in Little Rock at the time, you'll know that this was no exaggeration at all. One of the things I learned a little bit later on when I was uh, interviewing uh, a man who had served with the 101st, he was an African-American, and he rose through the rank of colonel. Uh, he was angry about what happened to Little Rock, not for the reasons that you might imagine. He was angry because when Eisenhower sent the 101st to Little Rock, he, conscious, he, he also issued an order to say that only white troops would be sent there. Because if African-American troops of the 101st were, uh, went there, that that might provoke the mob even more so. And, and my friend that I interviewed, oh, I'll give you his name, Sam Kelly, Dr. Sam Kelly, who was an administrator here for a number of years. He was angry about that for years. He was angry about that for years because he felt that as a member of the U.S. military, as, a, as an officer in the 101st Airborne, he should go along with his troops 
to, to essentially um, enforce the desegregation uh, decision. It didn't happen. Who knows? I mean, maybe Eisenhower was right. Maybe sending blacks as part of the 101st Airborne would have increased the tension uh, and that would have led to even more violence. But, but the very fact that Eisenhower would make a decision like that is reflective of the kinds of situation that had happened that had emerged at Little Rock at that particular time. Little Rock was a crisis. <laughs> There's no question about it. It was a crisis that was going to be followed not just on national TV. In other words, every single day you could go home and you can see on the 6 o'clock news uh, those soldiers guarding those, those students at Little Rock. But it was going to be a crisis of international proportion as well. Indeed, one of the reasons that Eisenhower actually ordered the, the 101st in was because he knew that if he didn't, that this would be a propaganda coup for the Soviets. The Soviets were, the Soviets were following this. People in Germany, people in, in France, people in Great Britain, people around the world were very much interested in, and some would say invested in the Little Rock crisis. They wanted to know what the U.S. government was going to do to ensure justice in, in the South, and particularly at Central High School. And, and I bring this up for a very important reason. I've hinted at it before in this class, but I think it's something that, that we, we ought to, to understand, that by, certainly by World War II, I would say this started probably with Scottsboro, but certainly by World War II, issues surrounding civil rights were no longer the exclusive purview of the U.S., that the world became involved, the world became interested, and the world commented on it. Uh, the stories of Little Rock were going to be headline stories in London papers and Paris papers and in other papers around the world. As Eisenhower said, I'm not using my words here, Eisenhower said that we've got to deal with Little Rock because it's giving us a black eye abroad. We've got to deal with Little Rock because it's giving us a, a black eye abroad. Eisenhower wasn't necessarily in favor of school integration. <laughs> okay. He was a product of his times and he actually expressed a lot of concerns about black kids and white kids sitting in the same classroom. But he was also the President of the United States and he felt that he had a responsibility, and he did have a responsibility to enforce the U.S. Supreme Court decision and other federal decisions. And so the die was cast, as, as Steve says, uh, that Eisenhower committed troops and those troops were going to be sent to defend the rights of these black kids in the South. Little Rock is significant for a couple of reasons. Uh, well, maybe three reasons. Let me, let me list them very quickly, and then we're going to take a break. Uh, first, Little Rock is significant because it proves that the 1954 Brown decision is, in fact, the law of the land. It proves that that, that decision means, or means that those who oppose desegregation are now on the wrong side of the law. In other words, before 1954, segregation was legal. Let me repeat that. Before 1954, segregation was legal. It was legal in uh, some 20 states, and not all of them were in the Deep South. After 1954, after the Brown decision, segregation is no longer legal. Segregation, in, in effect, those who promoted or embraced segregation were now violating the law. This was a very important message that was sent to, to people on both sides of, the, of this issue. For the first time in U.S. history, the law favored integrationists rather than segregationists. Secondly, Eisenhower set a precedent in Little Rock with the use of federal troops. This would happen again and again and again. Maybe it had to happen because of the potential for violence in the South. 
but the very fact that it did happen meant that the federal government was now committing its, its resources, including its, its most militant, if you will, resources, in order to defend black rights. This was a, this was a lesson that wasn't lost either on African Americans in the South or on, on the segregationists in the South as well. Thirdly, the 1954 decision and the Little Rock crisis itself left gaping holes in the wall of segregation. As you know, we've been talking about chips, <laughs> chipping away at that wall since the beginning of the class. I'm not going to suggest to you that that wall fell in 1954 or 1957 or the 1960s, but I am going to say that its foundation was for the first time significantly weakened. Its foundation was significantly weakened. But it also led, especially uh, the Little Rock crisis, it led to the realization that the battle for civil rights could go only so far in the courts. Now it would have to take place in the streets. Now it would also have to take place in the streets. I think that's a good point for us to break. Uh, and we'll take five minutes. Uh, then we'll regroup and I'll talk about the, the, the battle in the streets. We'll talk about the sit-ins that began in the early 1960s. Okay. Okay, we're going to get started. When I say we're going to get started, am I being filmed? <laughs> okay, okay we're, we're getting started. I, I, I hope you understand uh, the argument. What, what we're suggesting to you is, is that, um, as I said at the very beginning, ordinary people were going to be crucial in, in the rise of the civil rights movement. And you see this in a whole host of ways. I think you've seen it in terms of the civil rights cases that sort of bubble up from the bottom to the top, uh, cases that, that, that challenge uh, uh, the conventions of race in American society. And I think you also see it in terms of crises like Little Rock. These are kids. These are high school kids. And, you know, some can argue that the, these were kids who were pulled into a vortex of, of politics, and they really weren't, you know, significant instruments in control of their own destiny. On the other hand, one could argue that these kids understood that they were making history. They understood that they were part of a challenge, part of a much larger challenge of racial segregation. So, so yes, it's about going to a particular high school. It's about integrating a particular high school in Little Rock, Arkansas, but it's about much more than that. It's about seeing and seeing to it that there's there is racial justice all over all over the country. Uh, as I said at the, at just before the break, uh, the the Little Rock, Little Rock crisis was the last major crisis uh, in the 1950s. Certainly, the last major crisis that we're going to address. It was also significant because it was a crisis that grew out of the legal attempt to try to to ban segregation, the legal attempt to try to challenge segregation. By the early 1960s, there will be new forms of protest, new forms of challenge of segregation. And what I'm speaking about here essentially are the sit-ins and all of the demonstrations that accompany those sit-ins. And here, the idea of ordinary people becomes unequivocal. In other words, the folks who are going to engage literally in these thousands, thousands of demonstrations all across the South, no, strike that, not just all across the South, all over the country, because there's going to be a civil rights movement right here in Seattle, as some of you already know. 
And it's those ordinary people who were going to say, we want justice, we demand justice, and we're willing to take to the streets in order to bring about that justice. So let me talk about the sit-ins. Let me talk about why the sit-ins would take place in the early 1960s and how that would lead to this nationwide campaign for, uh, uh, to challenge uh, segregation and racial discrimination. By 1960, the overall civil rights gains of the last six years were clearly recognized by a number of people, but especially by black students and black students in the South, black students, black college students in the colleges and universities in the South. Uh, they had seen segregation outlawed in public schools. They had seen, of course, uh, the Little Rock situation where federal troops came in to defend uh, the rights of, of black children. But they also saw in 1957, and this in some ways came out of Little Rock, they saw in 1957 the passage of a civil rights bill. Now, as we look back on it now, that civil rights bill was very weak. As we look back on it now, the, probably the major thing that came out of the Civil Rights Bill was the U.S. Civil Rights Commission, which is still in existence, still sort of limping along. Uh, but on the other hand, in 1957, that Civil Rights Bill was the first bill of its kind to be passed by the U.S. Congress since 1875. <laughs> I want you to think about that. In other words, finally, Congress was beginning to act on, on the rights of blacks and other people of color uh, throughout, uh, throughout the country. Also, by 1960, those students in the South had saw the success, had witnessed the success of Martin Luther King. Now, we won't talk, we don't have time to talk about the Montgomery bus boycott, but I think you're all familiar with it. I will say this, the Montgomery bus boycott was a prime example of ordinary people. You know the story of Rosa Parks, okay? And you know that she's a brave woman and, and uh, you know, there are monuments to her all over, all over the country. What you probably don't know is the rest of the story. That Rosa Parks, her, her symbolic act could not have been successful had it not been sustained by literally thousands of black folks in Montgomery, Alabama, who chose to walk rather than ride. And they did so for well over a year. Despite the fact that these were the people who depended upon public transportation, they decided that they were not going to use that transportation because it was segregated uh, and they, they, were, they were essentially marginalized by this public transportation system. And to, to, to make it very, very plain, they wanted dignity. Very, very plain. They wanted dignity, and they decided that they wouldn't ride in order to, in order to gain uh, that dignity. So, so students had seen the victories. They had seen the changes that were taking place in, in the South at the, uh, at the time. Uh, they had seen ordinary people, again, involved in these victories, ordinary people uh, challenging the status quo. But what the students also saw in 1960 was, was essentially a wall of segregation that, even though it had gaping holes in it, was still standing. And some would say still, still proudly standing. Let me give you some examples. This is public school segregation by state in 1954. There's the, 19, <laughs> there's the 1954 Supreme Court decision that makes all of this illegal. All of this is now outlawed, okay? Except that here's the reality. By 1960, by 1960, 92% of the black children in the South still remain in segregated schools. In other words, despite despite the, the Supreme Court decision that outlawed uh, de jure segregation, 
92% of the kids in the South, or kids in these states, still, still went to segregated schools. Or to put it more, more bluntly, more directly, what you see in this room today, what you see in this room today would have been illegal, or at least would not have been allowed in a whole host of schools and a whole host of, of states, even as late as 1960, despite the Supreme Court decision. So, so these students, these college students, recognize that there's a contradiction. There's something wrong. On one hand, there's a Supreme Court decision. On the other hand, there's the reality that segregation is still very much alive. Secondly, by 1960, these students also recognize that 65% of the South's eligible black voters were not allowed to vote. 65% of the South's eligible black voters were not allowed to vote. Folks, that included my parents. <laughs> in 1960, my parents were in their 40s. They had never voted, and, and uh, some sort of assumed that they never would, that they never would. That would change for them, and it would change for a lot of black folks in the South. But I want you to, I want you to see the figures. In Georgia, the figure is 76%. In Alabama, it's 89%. In Mississippi, it's 99%. In other words, 99% of the black folks eligible to vote were not allowed to vote in the, in the state of Mississippi in, in, in 1960. Uh, this was the reality. This was the reality that these, these, these students saw uh, in 1960. Thirdly, there were thousands, thousands of private businesses and public accommodations across the South that either barred blacks altogether or segregated them. Again, the reality. This is... Uh, yeah, I keep, keep becoming personal here. I remember these signs. I remember growing up with these signs. They were on businesses throughout Brownsville, Tennessee, where I grew up, and I suspect that they were on businesses throughout the South at that time, and maybe even in some places outside of the South. Restaurants, hotels, theaters, drugstores, department stores, public parks, all segregated. All segregated. Let me give you a, a sign that I do remember seeing. I'm going to get personal here. Overton Park Zoo. I grew up in Brownsville. You all know that we grew up in Brownsville. And uh, Memphis was the big city. It's sort of like Olympia and Seattle. You know? So you go to the big city for various recreation. So I would say every three months, uh, the kids from my school uh, would be put on a bus, and we would go to Memphis to the zoo. Yeah, it's a great experience for kids. You, know, you go to see the animals. But, <laughs> but the zoo was segregated. Thursday, every Thursday at the Overton Park Zoo, this sign was put out. No whites were allowed in the Overton Park Zoo because this was Negro Day. This was Negro Day. In other words, this was the day, this was the only day, but this was the day that African Americans were allowed to, uh, to, to, to go to the zoo. Uh, Negro Day carried in a whole host of ways. There was a Negro Day for, for swimming pools. There was a Negro day for department stores. In other words, we can only go to department stores and try on clothes on Thursday, which was Negro day, Negro shopping day. Sometimes it's called Negro shopping day. That, that was the way of the world at that time. That was the nature of segregation. And that's the situation that, that those African-American students realized uh, at that particular time. Uh, let, me, let me pull this image up uh, because I think it's a very poignant description of, of segregation in 1960. Now, Give you a minute so you can read it.
the question has always been raised, why 1960? Why this date? Why, why would things begin to change, or more, more specifically, why would students in the South begin to challenge segregation at that, uh, at that particular moment? Um, first of all, uh, that question is based upon an incorrect premise. It didn't simply start in 1960. There had been situations or developments that had taken place earlier that were going to lead up to this. Well, well, actually, you can argue that the entire African-American history class that I've been telling you about would lead up to this. But there were certain episodes, certain specific episodes that would lead up to this, and I want to mention a couple of them. One of the ones I'm going to mention is, is an episode at the University of New Mexico in 1948. Now, this is not in your history book. It's not in, it's not in either of the books that you're, you're reading. Essentially, uh, the, the, the University of New Mexico itself wasn't segregated and had a handful of black students, including a guy named George Long. George Long started out as an undergraduate student. He eventually becomes a law student and eventually practices in Oakland. That's a, that's a different story. That's a side story. But George Long was a 19-year-old at the, at the University of New Mexico in 1948, and he could not go to the favorite watering hole for the students, which was across the street from the campus. And that, that watering hole was Oklahoma Joe's. It was kind of a combination bar and restaurant, and it was considered the best place in, in Albuquerque for the, for the college students at that point. I don't know if you have watering holes anymore. I don't know if you have places that you go to, but this was a, this was a great place for college students to hang out, except if you were black. And so George Long decided to challenge this. And not only did he challenge this, but he got the, uh, I guess it would be the associated students at the University of New Mexico to join in the challenge. In other words, he persuaded them to vote to pass uh, a resolution calling for all University of New Mexico students to boycott Oklahoma Joe's. This was remarkable. This was remarkable. These, these were mostly white students, the overwhelming majority of white students, who said this kind of racial practice is wrong. And that boycott was so successful that not only was Oklahoma Joe's integrated, but indeed Long became the architect of a campaign to get a civil rights ordinance passed for Albuquerque, New Mexico. He did this while he was uh, still in, in, in undergraduate school. And then while he was in law school, he helped to draft the legislation that would become the New Mexico Civil Rights Act. <laughs> okay? The New Mexico Civil Rights Act was passed in 1955. What makes this story interesting is that some of the, uh, some of the legal language of the New Mexico Act would eventually be integrated into the 1964 Civil Rights Act that would govern the entire country. My point here is that George Long, an ordinary college student, would begin a protest that would have ramifications far beyond, far, far beyond New Mexico, uh, far beyond Albuquerque, far beyond the campus of the University of New Mexico at, at that time. But Long is not the, not the only one who was involved in this. Let me, let me give you another example. Civil rights demonstrations in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma in 1958. Very few people are familiar with this. Those demonstrations uh, were going to be led. Well, actually, there were, there were two sets of demonstrations. I don't have a picture for, for Wichita, but there were civil rights demonstrations in Wichita, Kansas, and in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. 
The civil rights demonstrations in Wichita, Kansas were led by a 21-year-old college student named Ron Walters. The civil rights demonstrations in Oklahoma City in 1958 were led by a 16-year-old high school student named Barbara Posey. Barbara Posey. Ordinary people. Well, maybe extraordinary people who, who just up until that point lead ordinary lives and then become involved in the civil rights movement. Yet I think we have to, to understand that, that the protests in New Mexico, the protests in Oklahoma, the protests in, in uh, Wichita didn't sort of catch on. They didn't catch fire. They didn't grow as would be the case after Greensboro in 1960. And, 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 and of course, for that reason, we don't know very much about them. For that reason, they don't make the history books or they don't stand out in the history books as, as much. 19, by 1960, the situation would be different. By 1960, the protests would begin, and this time, they would continue. They would grow, and they would spread, and they would continue, and eventually they would transform America. Let me, uh, let me talk about uh, the reasons or the background for those protests that began in 1960. First of all, there are a whole host of college students white college students, but even more importantly, young black college students who were going to school uh, partly because their parents had made money during World War II. Remember we talked about the rising tide of prosperity for African Americans in the Second World War? Well, that rising tide of prosperity means that a lot more kids, a lot more young black kids will go to college. In other words, an emerging black middle class will send a wave, a huge wave of, of students uh, to college. And unlike the earlier black college students, and there, there had always been some black college students, but unlike the earlier black college students that had mostly come from dire poverty, that is a background of dire poverty, these kids were upperly mobile. These kids <laughs> believed that they had a future, and they believed that if they could get rid of segregation, that future would be even brighter. In other words, for them, segregation, for them, racial injustice stood in the way of both their own economic progress and growth and their full participation in American society. And so, so for them, it was very important to challenge the system. I'm going to say something here, and I'm going to get myself in trouble again on national TV, but I, I think a lot of African Americans, and particularly young African Americans, have lost that. That a lot of young African Americans have come to the conclusion, I think it's a false conclusion, but they come to the conclusion that the situation is so bad that it's just as bad as it was before and that there's no hope, there's no way out. And that's, that's a shame because one of the things that was very important for the civil rights movement in the 1960s was the sense that one could change the world. As a matter of fact, there's almost an arrogance <laughs> on the part of these people in terms of believing that they, uh, that they could change the world. I'll come back to that in, in a minute. Uh, but that optimism is very important. These were kids who felt that they really could. These were college students who felt that they really could uh, change the world. Secondly, these students uh, did not understand, and they were often impatient with the legalistic approach of the NAACP. And the NAACP, for them, essentially was their elders. They wanted to do something. They wanted to do something dramatic, and they wanted to do something now in order to challenge segregation. You guys reckon, do you know where that is? Anybody know? It looks like it's down 
Yeah, yeah. It's the University of Washington. It's 15. Uh, it's, <laughs> this is a, this is, theoretically, this is a sympathy demonstration. In other words, these are college students at the university, black and white college students at the University of Washington, supporting what's going on in Nashville. And I'll pull up another one here. Here's another one. This is another uh, demonstration in Seattle in 1960, a support demonstration. But I can tell you, although this is not part of the main lecture tonight, by 1961, these students will be on, in the streets not protesting or not supporting what's going on in Nashville in terms of those protests. They will be in the streets protesting racial discrimination in Seattle. <laughs> okay. But in 1960, they're still at the... Let's see if I can go back. In 1960, they're still at the sympathy demonstration stage. That will change. Uh, that, that will change, and it will change dramatically. But the point here is that these young people, whether they're in Seattle or whether they're in Selma, they understand that something's wrong. They understand that, uh, that racial injustice is rampant, and they want to they do something. They want to employ the direct action approach of Martin Luther King and others in order to challenge racial segregation. Um, I, yeah, I, again, I don't want to put people on the spot here. I mean, I, often when I talk about how these students, these ordinary students, were going to engage in civil rights activity, there's kind of the, the un, unspoken word that somehow or another I'm castigating or criticizing young students for the lack of activism now. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> okay, I'm not. But what I am saying is that there is a particular moment there is a particular moment in history when, if you will, the stars line up. It's an overworked cliche, but the stars line up. And those stars lined up in 1960, and those students were in the middle of that constellation. Those students, those young students, students who are no older than those of you in this room, were in the middle of those stars lining up at that moment. But there are other factors, and let me, let me talk about those other factors. Uh, there's a presidential campaign going on in 1960, uh, actually, in early 1960, in February 1960, there, <laughs> there are presidential primaries, and there is an intense, guess what? There's an intense battle going on in the Democratic Party to see who's going to get the nomination. The two leading candidates at that time on the Democratic side were the senator from Minnesota, Hubert Humphrey, who had, had a long civil rights record, uh, and a young senator from Massachusetts named John Kennedy, who hadn't had as much of a civil rights record. But they were, they were going to do battle, and they were going to engage in rhetoric, you know, as John Kennedy does here with Adam Clayton Powell and Eleanor Roosevelt in Harlem. They were going to talk about what they would do to promote civil rights. Now, as we look back on their words now, as we look back at the transcript of their, their speeches, they really weren't making much of a commitment. But the students saw an identification with their cause. The students saw these presidential candidates as saying, we are with you. We, we want to try to change America. We want to challenge racial injustice in American society just like you do. And this was, this was heartening to the students, or at least students took this as heartening. And they said, this is another reason as to why we should, we should go forward without civil rights activity. In other words, there is something out there. There, there, is, there is this sense, this, this tangible sense, that, uh, this atmosphere, as it were, that, that says that, that the political leaders, or at least the political leaders in the Democratic Party, are in favor of civil rights. And, and as a result, they, uh, uh, the students should move forward. But there is something else. In the late 1950s and through the early 1960s, 
country after country after country was becoming independent. These countries were sometimes involved in violent struggle. More often, they were involved in nonviolent struggle, the kind of nonviolent struggle that, that African American students would be engaged in. And, and the political leaders like Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana uh, or Benjamin Azikwe in Nigeria were heroes to these students because these were men, almost all men, there were very few women involved, but these were men who were leading their nations to independence. And the assumption was, before African corruption rose, the assumption was that once these nations become independent, they will be democratic, they will show the way, they will show that black people can participate in the political process, they will change the world dynamic. That was the hope. And I can say this because I was one of those people who naively had that hope. I was, okay, I'll just go on record here. I was proud of every new African nation. I was excited every time a new flag went up. Uh, showing that there was a new African nation because I identified with that. And I said that this is part, this is going to be part of the freedom struggle because they are engaged in a struggle for freedom and they are successful. And others ought to be, others in the United States ought to be and will be engaged in that, in that same struggle. Uh, there's, there's one other thing that I should mention because I don't want to take too much time on this. Uh, but there is what, what I call the arrogance of youth the very beginning of the baby boom generation. Now, they, the people who took place in, uh, excuse me, people who took part in civil rights demonstrations in 19, 1960 were really, unless they were, you know, 14 or 15, they really weren't technically part of the baby boom generation. But just wait for a couple of years. As more and more of these young people came of age, those, those people would become participants in civil rights struggles. And, and I, you know, it's hard to sort of explain now, but there was a particular arrogance. And I'm speaking of myself and my own generation now, so I'm indicting myself, guys. But there was a particular arrogance on the part of that generation, of my generation. We really did believe we were going to change the world. We really did believe that we could do anything. And we really were impatient with the political leadership that had come before us, we knew that we would do better. We were wrong, <laughs> we, as, as everybody has figured out at this point. But at that moment, we really believed that we, we would do better. I'm going to go so far as to suggest that I believe that some of you may feel the same way. Okay, don't answer that. <laughs> don't, don't answer that at all. <laughs> but, but the point here is that in, in the 1960s, there were a lot of young people. There were just a lot of young people, okay? More young people than there had been in the past because of the baby boom generation. And, and it's the very numbers, the sheer numbers of those young people that, that created the sense, this atmosphere, that somehow the young people, by the, very, by the very fact that they were young people, yeah, yeah, I know this is naive, but young people, by the very fact that they were young people, were going to change America by the, by the very fact that they were, they were young and they were eager and they were active and they were energetic and all of this dynamism somehow or another would change America for the better. Okay, we all got old and we all got cynical. But, but that's, that's the way we looked at the world in, in, in the 1960s. And that becomes a very important factor in terms of civil rights activity. It becomes a very important factor in terms of those young people coming into those demonstrations. Let me, let me shift here to the demonstrations themselves. And let me go back to the very first one, the father of them all, which was the Greensboro sit-in in 1960. 
uh, the sit-in at Woolworths at Greensboro, North Carolina in 1960. How many of you have heard of this, this sit-in before this class, honestly? Okay, most of you, most of you. This is considered the red-letter date, or one of the red-letter dates in, in the Civil Rights Movement. I'll, 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 I'll list those men, because I'm going I'm to list their names in a minute. But I want, again, I, I, again, I want to provide a context for you to understand what happened. Ordinary people. Very ordinary people. These are four college students. They were college students at uh, North Carolina Agricultural and Technical uh, University in Greensboro, North Carolina. They weren't the brightest students. They weren't the best students. Uh, they shared a couple of dormitory rooms. And they would get together for these, okay, I'm trying to look for a better word than what I'm going to, well, okay, I'll just say it on national TV. They got together for bull sessions. Have you guys ever heard of a bull session? Okay, some of, some of us are old enough to remember this. Essentially, students, what, don't students get together in their dormitory room? No, you guys go on Facebook now. But, but before there's Facebook, people actually got together and they sat down and they talked about life and issues and what they were going to do, what their futures were going to be. In this instance, these students talked about racial segregation. They talked about all those other things. But they also said, you know, we don't like the fact that Woolworths and other schools and, oh, excuse me, other stores in downtown Greensboro are segregated. Now, a lot of people have said before, we don't like that they're segregated. This time, this time, they decided to do something about it. There is no grand strategy, okay? These guys aren't a member of some kind of organization, okay? These are just plain college students who decide we're going to do something. We're going to, we're going to engage in a protest that will challenge racial segregation. Um, now just a side note, at the time, I don't know if this is a major factor, but at the time, the student body president was Jesse Jackson. <laughs> okay. uh, but they were, they were all kids who, who said, we want to do something. They were freshmen. They were freshmen, so they, they were just barely in school. Uh, but they, they knew that they wanted to do something about this situation. So on February 1st, 1960, these four college freshmen, Ezell Blair, Joseph McNeil, David Richmond, and Franklin McCain, decided after a conversation in the dormitory room the night before that they not only did not like the fact that Woolworths was segregated, but they were going to do something about it. And so they walked, they didn't even march, they walked down to Woolworths the next day, and they decided to stage a sit-in. And I don't know where they got the idea of the sit-in from, there have been sit-ins before, but they decided that this is a way of nonviolently protesting, protesting uh, the segregation of the Woolworths store. Uh, <laughs> they walked in and they had no idea what they were going to expect. They had no idea what greeting uh, was, uh, was going to meet them. They sat at the stools, uh, and of course, here's the problem. According to the segregationist ordinances, black folks are not supposed to come in and sit at the lunch counter. They're supposed to come and, and give an order and then get whatever they get and leave, usually at a back door. But these kids decided they were going to come and they were going to sit at the lunch counter. They did, and at first, and I'm going to show you how ironic this is, at first, uh, the, the black counterperson, yes, there were black people working at Woolworths. The black counterperson said, look, you guys get out of here. If you don't get out of here, you're going to cost me my job. Because this counterperson, uh, his responsibility was to serve whites. 
He understood if they were being served, and if he, if he was seen as somehow or another being involved in this, then he would lose his position. So, so they said, we're not here to harm you. We're not here to challenge you. We are here for justice, or whatever the term was at, at that time that they used. And they just sat, and they weren't served. And they continued to sit, and they weren't served. And, and an hour turned into two hours, and finally one of the, one of the people, uh, uh, McCain, said, maybe they can't do anything. I'm going to use his direct quote. Maybe they can't do anything to us. Maybe we can just keep this up. And they just sat there until Woolworths closed at 5 that evening. That's the beginning of the movement. <laughs> it's as simple as that. That's the beginning of the movement. Uh, they thought they were going to be arrested. Uh, the manager thought, <laughs> contemplated having them arrested. Uh, there were cops that came outside. But nobody moved against them. Nobody, nobody attempted to arrest them. Nobody attempted to attack them at, uh, at that particular point. At, at that point, they went back to their, their dormitory rooms, confident that they had actually won a victory, that they had actually gone in, they had protested. They hadn't been served, but they had managed to protest without getting arrested. And so what happens the next day? They bring friends. <laughs> they bring a lot of friends, okay? And these friends sit. And then for the next couple of days, other friends come, and, and, the, and the protest continues. And after a fashion, the, the manager says, serve them, I'm losing money. You know, I mean, this, you know, I, I don't want to sound sort of trite about this, but this is, this is how ordinary the situation was. A group of people who got together and said, we're going to challenge racial segregation. They didn't have any grand scheme or plan or strategy. They just decided to do it, and, and it resonated. It caught, it caught on. And, and essentially, once, once it was declared successful in Greensboro, then, of course, other college students began to join in. The movement spread to, to Raleigh. It spread to Durham. Uh, I'm particularly very much aware of Raleigh because... One of the schools that was the earliest participant in, in this, these uh, demonstrations uh, was St. Augustine's College. That's my old college. Now, I wasn't there. I was still in Brownsville at the time. I was still young. But, but uh, essentially, students from my campus, uh, from that campus, participated in protests. Students from Shaw University participated in protests. And then, much to the surprise of a lot of folks, students from Duke University joined in the protests. Now, all of a sudden, there are integrated groups <laughs> who are sitting in, and, they're, and they are breaking down this wall of segregation uh, in, in, in the cities across North Carolina. The, the protests spread across almost every town, every city in North Carolina. They had colleges, they had black colleges at least. And by the end of February, remember, the first demonstration was February 1st. By the end of February, February 28th, oh, there was a leap year, February 29th. By February 29th, Every major city in, in North Carolina had seen its public facilities desegregated. This was a major victory, an un, a surprising victory, an unexpected victory. Now, that's not to mean that, that racial discrimination ended in North Carolina. I'm not suggesting that at all. What I am suggesting is that the sit-ins had initially at least been successful. The sit-ins had, had done what they, they had intended to do, and that was the focus attention on, on segregated public facilities. Once the, once the success came to North Carolina, it began to spread across the South. It spread to Atlanta. It spread to Richmond. It spread to Nashville. 
Atlanta, the Atlanta sit-ins were led by a 20-year-old college student named Julian Bond. How many of you have heard of Julian Bond? Okay, Julian Bond is still an activist too. That's not Julian Bond. <laughs> That's, those are some, some other folks. But, but essentially college students, college students would, uh, would decide to get involved in this. These are the, I'll just, I'll explain this photograph. These are the kids from Nashville. I shouldn't call them kids. These are the college students from Nashville. And they were led by a remarkable woman named Diane Nash. And I wish we had more time to talk about her. She was, again, one of those ordinary students, an ordinary college student who becomes extraordinary. She's one of the leaders. I, this is not in the script, so to speak, but she becomes one of the leaders of the Freedom Rides. Uh, she becomes so important that, uh, that she literally defies the federal government and continues the Freedom Rides when the Kennedy administration wants to shut them down. And Robert Kennedy asks famously, who the hell is Diane Nash? <laughs> because, she has, because she has effectively defied the federal government and she continues to lead the demonstrations and eventually, eventually there will be the integration of the bus facility. That's another story. I, I don't have time for that, but that's another story. But that, that's an idea. That's, that's a, a, an example, I should say, of what's going on at this particular time. Let me give you the stats. Uh, by, by March 14, 1960, by March 14th, uh, there were 17 separate dem- demonstrations of sit-in in Atlanta alone involving over 1,000 students. Yes, this is a movement. Yes, these are students. These are ordinary people who are getting engaged in, in, in these kinds of protests. I love this photograph on the left. You guys should never complain again about taking an exam or studying for an exam. These are kids who are studying for their midterm while they're in jail. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and what they're, say- what they're saying is that our freedom is as important as our education. Our freedom is as important as our, our, our education. Uh, the, one, the man on the right, Reverend James Lawson, uh, is one of the leaders. He's one of the older leaders of the sit-ins that, is, uh, that are spreading out across Nashville. Um, by June 1960, now remember, we're talking February to June. By June 1960... Sit-ins and other demonstrations had occurred in 112 cities across the South. That is from Virginia to the Texas border. From Virginia to the Texas border. The first demonstrations came in Houston uh, in, in the summer, in, in later in June 1960. And I'll tell you how they came about. They're sort of humorous. Lyndon Johnson, the vice president, well, yeah, yeah he's, he's just recently inaugurated as the vice president, Lyndon Johnson, when asked about the civil rights demonstration sweeping across the South, says that, yeah, I don't understand what's going on, but what I do know is that our students or our kids in Texas are not stupid enough to get wrapped up in these kinds of civil rights demonstrations. The next day, the first demonstration was in Houston. <laughs> okay. In, in other words, over and over and over again, over and over and over again, Students are going to take to the streets. They're going to challenge racial segregation. I, I'll give you another footnote here, too. Uh, the person who, who um, covered the first civil rights demonstration in Houston, Texas, the first uh, sit-in in Houston, Texas, was a young reporter from East Texas who would eventually come to identify with the movement. That reporter's name was Dan Rather. Dan Rather. This is, a, as I said before, this is a movement. This is a movement that's uh, sweeping fast. And indeed, it's sweeping across the South so fast, so very fast, 
that the elder civil rights leaders, the people in the NAACP especially, are becoming concerned, or maybe I should use the term, alarmed. <laughs> in other words, and it's not, it's not simply the fact that the elders don't like the fact that all these young people are doing this stuff. It's the fact that the, the elders also understand that when these kids go to jail, NAACP funds are used to bail them out. <laughs> and so, so there's a draw or a drain on NAACP resources. And so as a consequence of this, the NAACP, along with the SCLC, the other civil rights organization that Martin Luther King, decide that they had better try to get control over these students. They had better try to organize these students and orchestrate these students and lead these students rather than have these, these civil rights demonstrations uh, take place, uh, you know, sort of ad hoc all across the South. And so a conference was called uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina at, at Shaw University uh, in 1960, in April 1960. And the, and the consequence of this three-day conference was a new organization, an organization essentially of these young people, an organization that's supposed to represent these young people. And that organization was going to be called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating, Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating <laughs> Committee. Uh, let me explain these two people. You may already know them. Ella Baker was the NAACP leader, the elder, uh, who was given the responsibility for organizing SNCC. She was one of the few elders that the, that the students trusted. And Marion Barry <laughs> was the first chair of SNCC. How many of you know who Marion Barry is? Ooh, you probably know him in a different context, don't you? Uh, I didn't say civil rights leaders were infallible. I mean, I, they were brave. And Marion Barry in 1960 was brave. He, uh, like a lot of student leaders, and I'm not recommending this, I'm not suggesting this, he dropped out of school in order to become a full-time participant in the movement. Uh, but he would lead SNCC. He would lead SNCC in his early days. Uh, and I think he would be a very vibrant, vibrant and dynamic leader. Let me talk about SNCC for a minute. This is how SNCC differed from the, from the other organizations. First of all, SNCC was committed to the tactics, but not the philosophy of nonviolence. SNCC was committed to the tactics, but not the philosophy of nonviolence. This was a reference to Martin Luther King. Remember, King had always talked about how nonviolence was going to transform America, that it was not just a tactic for him, it was a way of life. The SNCC people said no to that. As a matter of fact, eventually the SNCC people would have great disdain for Martin Luther King for a whole host of reasons that I won't go into now. But the SNCC people always said that nonviolence is a tactic to be used in this struggle. It's not a philosophy that, that, that we embrace. Secondly, the SNCC people argued that confrontation brings more results than closed-door negotiations. Again, this was a slap at the NAACP and SCLC. One of the things that would happen often is that SCLC, and, and maybe I should talk about LC, SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. This essentially was the, organize, the organization of Martin Luther King. After Martin Luther King had the successful, uh, led the successful um, boycott in Montgomery, some people suggested that he ought to have an organization, that there ought to be an organization that forms around him. And essentially, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference became his organization. He was the head of it for most of the, well, all of, all of his life, and people gravitated toward it, mostly ministers, mostly Southern black ministers. They gravitated toward it because of their respect for King. Um, 
But SCLC had a particular idea about the civil rights movement. Uh, they, as I said before, they had this idea that they were going to completely transform American society, and SNCC didn't buy it. SNCC didn't buy into that. And one of the things that SNCC was critical of was that SCLC would come in, they would organize demonstrations, very public demonstrations, and then almost immediately after the public demonstrations would begin, they would go behind closed doors and negotiate a settlement. SNCC said no to that. SNCC said, we are going to confront racism where it is, we are not going to negotiate with anybody. <laughs> we're going to fight until, uh, until we win this particular campaign. Uh, thirdly, SNCC saw its role, or the SNCC leadership saw, saw their role as assisting local leaders rather than dominating uh, a local campaign. Again, a contrast with Martin Luther King. With Martin Luther King, there's a local campaign going on. Local leaders were asked Martin Luther King to come in. He and SNCC will fly in, and they will take over. They will, they will take over the movement. They will, they will make all the decisions. The SNCC people were just the opposite. They were very, very quiet. They didn't put themselves in, in front of the TV cameras. Uh, they said that our job is to help local leadership develop and to help local leadership achieve its goals. I'm going to give you one example of this, uh, and it's actually it's a local example. It's Tent City in Fayette County, Tennessee. I, I, yeah, I told you that I grew up in Brownsville. Fayette County, Tennessee is the next county over. Both Haywood County and Fayette County experience rampant voter intimidation. Remember I said earlier that my parents hadn't voted uh, in 1960. They had never voted. The reason they had never voted was because the last person who attempted to organize black voters in Haywood County, Tennessee in 1940 was lynched. It was that simple. The last person was lynched. And his body was dismembered, and it was thrown into the Tallahatchie River, and eventually it was discovered, and it was horrific. What, what, what was fished up was horrific. And it was designed to, well, it was designed to, to make a statement. And that statement was that if you attempt to vote, you will lose your life. And so it seemed then that that was going to hold, except by 1960, there's a new generation of people coming along, and they're going to try again. They're, they're, they're going to try to vote. And most of these folks were sharecroppers. Most of the, again, ordinary people. But these were sharecroppers who said, you know, we want the right to vote. And unfortunately, if you're a sharecropper and you try to vote in Haywood County or Fayette County, Tennessee, the landowner can come in and say, you know, get off my land. If you want to try to vote, you're not going to work here. You're not going to be a sharecropper any longer. And at that point, uh, about three black landowners, two in Haywood County, one in Fayette County, at considerable risk to themselves, allowed these sharecroppers who had been kicked off, their, uh, off the various properties to come and build or establish tent cities on their, on their properties. The leaders of this effort, or I shouldn't say the leaders, the people who assisted the folks in Fayette County and Haywood County were SNCC people, including a guy named Heroid Brown, who eventually in the late 1960s became known to the world is H. Rap Brown. Now, by the late 1960s, H. Rap Brown was the guy who wanted to kill everybody. In 1961, Heroid Brown was a guy who dropped out of college and came to Brownsville, Tennessee, or came to the area surrounding Brown Brownsville, Tennessee, and risked his life 
to help develop the leadership that would help get my parents and other people the right to vote. So this is, this is SNCC. This is what they do. This is, this is what they're about. Uh, and they, they want and they will challenge the system, and not just the system of racial segregation. They will also challenge the elite status, if you will, of the other civil rights organization, or what they call the timidity of the other civil rights organizations. Fourthly, finally, SNCC, among all the civil rights organizations, seriously commits itself to voter registration. And, and we see that reflected in what happens in Brownsville. It's also reflected in what happens in Mississippi. They, they will be the organization that goes into the heart of Mississippi, and they will, they will help blacks register to vote. As a matter of fact, let me pull up Bob Moses. I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with Bob Moses. Uh, Steve is. He's shaking his head in affirmation. Bob Moses is legendary, legendary among civil rights figures. Um, he was the leader of the SNCC registration efforts in Mississippi. First of all, it's extremely, he's extremely brave to do that. <laughs> extremely brave to do that, given what happens in Mississippi, given the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission and all the rest that we've talked about. Moses was a, a kind and gentle and almost angelic figure. I've only heard him speak once. And even now, even years later, he barely speaks above a whisper. And that was somehow or another the way in which he was he was able to organize a whole host of, of people or help local people organize, like, like you see here. He's, he's working with Cleve Jordan. Cleve Jordan is the civil rights leader. Uh, Bob Moses is there to assist Cleve Jordan. Bob Moses is also, at 25, the old man of SNCC. He is the oldest, at 25, he's the oldest uh, person involved in SNCC at that time. Again, ordinary people. And young, very, very young, ordinary people with that. Okay, let's, let's, let's talk about what's going on here in the larger context. SNCC has found that the civil rights demonstrations are sweeping across the South. It, one would imagine that there's a great deal of progress. Unfortunately, and there is, there is. There's no question that there are some places that are being successfully challenged, some, some segregationist institutions that are being successfully challenged. But there's also there are also places like Albany, Georgia, where the local sheriff outsmarted Martin Luther King in the civil rights demonstrations or demonstrators, and as a result, they didn't get what they wanted. In other words, we talk about the successes like Birmingham. We also need to remember that there were failures, that there were places where civil rights demonstrations uh, simply didn't work. But I think there was something else going on. It's not just that sometimes they fail. It's... <laughs> It's the very ubiquity of the demonstrations themselves. Let me give you some, some figures that sort of reflect on this, and I think you'll see both the prospect and the problem. By 1963, there had been over 2,000 civil rights demonstrations across the South. By 1963, by early 1963, there had been over 2,000 civil rights demonstrations across the South. Let me pull up this image. By 1963, an estimated 150,000 people had been involved in civil rights demonstrations. Talk about a grassroots movement. 150,000 people had been involved. By 1963, 10,000 people had been arrested. 10,000 people had been arrested. By 1963, Hundreds of people were injured or beaten by mobs and the police. In other words, it's hard to, to know. 
And by the best guesstimate of the civil rights leadership, the various civil rights organizations, at least 17 people had been killed because of their activity in, in, in civil rights demonstrations between 1960 and 1962. In other words, this was slow progress. This was very, very slow progress. And as you can imagine, a number of people were, were becoming upset with this. A number people were becoming increasingly impatient. As a matter of fact, and I'll pull this up. This is, these are the Freedom Rides. Um, I don't know how much. I, I don't know how much I want to say about that. I'll, I'll come back and say something about it. But, but the point of, the, of this, this assessment by all of these civil rights activists is that, as one said, if we continue at this rate, if we continue at this rate, it will take until 1980 before all of the South is desegregated. If we continue at this rate, it will take until 1980 before all of the South is, is integrated. And as a result, as a result, some people began to talk about doing something, doing something big to try to, to, try to focus national attention on the civil rights campaigns. Um, let me, I'm, I'm going to sort of move away from the script for a minute, uh, and let me show you some images that reflect on, on the civil rights campaigns. I mean, they're very poignant images, and, well, this one is certainly the Freedom Rides in 1961. Here again, there are young people, although in this instance it's young people and old people with the Congress of Racial Equality who decide to test what is already a law, what is it already be a law, the law of interstate travel uh, that says that anybody who travels across the South or anywhere can use the bus facilities. That's supposed to be the law. When, when they attempt a freedom ride that begins in Washington, D.C. and is supposed to end in New Orleans, uh, as they get farther and farther into the South, let's see if I can go back to the old, oops, wrong way. As they, you can see the line, you can see the line. As they get farther and farther into the South, more and more violence takes place, and finally, the bus is burned outside Anniston, Alabama. Uh, and at this point, at this point, this is the, the freedom rides become a national crisis. Um, I think what I will do here is give you, uh, I'll, I'll put on reserve a documentary on the freedom rides, because I don't want to talk, I can't, I don't have enough time to talk about them now, but it's a very, very powerful story. And in fact, there were people from up here, people from the Pacific Northwest, who actually went down to participate in those freedom rides, whites uh, who went down to join blacks on those buses. And it was, it was a scary situation because there was a tremendous amount of violence that was going to be meted out. Uh, the Freedom Riders were supposed to go from Washington, D.C. to New Orleans. They never made it. They never made it. They got as far as Jackson, Mississippi, where they were all thrown, not in jail, but in Parchment Penitentiary. <laughs> okay. And that's hard time, guys. That, that's really, really hard time in parchment. Uh, at, at any rate, my, my point here is that all of these, all of these activities are going on. It's Tent City. It's the Freedom Rides. It's the voter campaign. It's the, it's the efforts to try, the sit-ins to try to open up the lunch facilities and the other facilities. All this is going on, and it's all heroic. But is it enough? Is it enough? Uh, as we get farther and farther into, um, in, into the 1960s, then we realize that, that there's no national change or there's no action uh, at the national level. I'm, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go through a, a group of slides, and I'm going to share with you some slides at the, at the very end of, of this hour. Um, sit-ins, this is Jackson, Mississippi, 1963. This is toward the end of the sit-in movement, but you can see the violence. 
you can see the, the, uh, the violence that's involved here. Um, Birmingham, Alabama. Everybody in this room has probably heard of Birmingham. You know about the violence in Birmingham. You know what, what would happen in 1963. Uh, thousands, not hundreds, thousands of people would be arrested. Many of them would be children. Uh, the fire hoses, you know, the famous fire hoses would be turned on people. Um, and, of course, the worst of this was the, if you want to call it that, the, the worst of this was the four little girls who were killed, uh, who were bombed in a Sunday school uh, in September of 1963. This is Birmingham. And the man who orchestrated much of this is Bull Connor. Bull Connor was the same guy who went after Eleanor Roosevelt in 1937. He is still the head of the police. They don't, call, they don't have a chief of police position. Uh, he's called the, the commissioner of public safety. <laughs> Interesting phrase, commissioner of public safety. But he's also the person who's responsible for orchestrating violence uh, throughout northern Alabama, not just in Birmingham, but throughout northern Alabama uh, in, in the early 1960s. And then, of course, there is Medgar Evers, who was assassinated on June 12, 1963. You can see his funeral procession. Uh, Edgar, uh, Medgar Evers was the most important NAACP leader in Mississippi at the time of his assassination, and it sent shock waves throughout the country. Um, and I want to I end the discussion tonight uh, by pulling up a, what I think is a very poignant letter, a letter of, uh, from Mississippi in 1964, written by a young lady who I believe, I'm not certain on this, but I believe is from Seattle. In other words, a number of white college students and black college students went from the Pacific Northwest down to Mississippi down to, uh, down to other areas of the South to try to challenge racial segregation. And this is the letter from Bonnie. What, wherever she's from, what's important are the words here. This sort of explains why she gets involved and why others should get involved in the civil rights campaign. So I'll sort of end the class. I'll, I'll wrap up the class, guys, by allowing you to read that letter because I think that letter says volumes about why people would no longer accept the status quo why they would decide to get involved. And again, Bonnie, like the four students at Greensboro, and all the other people we've been talking about are ordinary people, otherwise ordinary people, who decide to challenge the racial status quo. That's the genius. That's literally the genius of the civil rights movement at that particular time. Okay, guys, we'll, we'll stop at, at this point here. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.